Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Hope everybody is having a relaxing Labor Day weekend and preparing for a very good and sweet new year on this eve of Rosh Hashanah. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The COVID pandemic is surging again in the United States with more than 648,000 dead, some 4.6 million dead worldwide since the beginning of the pandemic. The rise in COVID fatalities has driven a drop in economic performance with only about 235,000 new jobs created in August and air travel continuing to struggle as cases rise. Manufacturing defects will delay Boeing's 787 Dreamliner deliveries until at least October as Ryanair breaks off talks on a new order for Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft. The House Armed Services Committee has finished its Pentagon budget markup at $740 billion. The Senate is also looking at a steep increase uh, in defense spending. This as London develops alternative places to base its strategic nuclear deterrent should a new Scottish independence vote force ballistic missile subs from Her Majesty's naval base Clyde in Faslane. NATO and the EU are working more closely on defense and the eVTOL lessons from recent commercial space setbacks. Joining us as they do every week to discuss the week on world markets are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us, Vago, and a very happy Labor Day to you all. Happy Labor Day, and thanks, Vago. Yes, and on this Labor Day, I just want to point out to everybody that we are laboring in order to bring you the best content uh, we can. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And Finn Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsors our... Re- sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Ron, uh, you, you've got uh, the economic numbers are in, you've got a, lo- a markup, you've got an infrastructure measure, you've got the Boeing news, uh, the broader Delta picture, which does not look good. Uh, walk us through what were the drivers uh, on the street. Obviously, it was, you know, going into a holiday weekend. So, you know, and it's sort of the last tail end of the summer where people tend to be away uh, on a year or 18 months where more people were more mentally away uh, than they might have been uh, otherwise walk us through what were the big drivers for the week yeah it was it was, it was ultimately a, a very quiet week on the street i think some people were starting to actually come back a little bit early but um with the three-day weekend um uh, it, it was it was pretty quiet you know the s&p was essentially um, flat for the week was up um, about 50 bips. So uh, we didn't see much of a, much of a move on the S&P. Um, you know, in, in our world, both um, the aerospace names and the defense names were down um, maybe uh, 100, 150 basis points more than the market. So they underperformed the market on the week. But it was, but it was broadly quietly weak. Oil prices uh, trickled a little bit higher. I think that was on because of what happened with the hurricane. Uh, and, you know, interest rates are kind of slowly, steadily and trending, trending back up again, right? I mean, I think there's a, a, a fear out there again about inflation and that, that's kind of coming back, um, um, among other things. And I think if you look at the composite stock uh, market volumes, they were uh, down on the week just, be, just because of uh, uh, the holiday. So that, that's kind of where we are. I started to get some questions from 
um, in, investors on the um, the house uh, markup um, of the uh, you know the NDAA. Uh, so that's I think investors are starting to look at defense, and there's been more incoming questions on defense. So uh, you know maybe you know the defense group is going to attract uh, a little more attention uh, from investors, uh, particularly given with you know, the COVID stuff, and it it seems like. The debate on business travel is is starting to come in that business travel for kind of the at least for the next quarter or so is going to be be more quiet than people were hoping. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of rotation out of commercial into defense, and with the defense budget coming in better than what people were thinking. I mean, think about it. Um, right after the election, I was having conversations with with investors, and there was an expectation that you could see under you know under a Biden administration over a period of years. Um, you know, budget cuts of maybe 20, 30%. And be it that this year, we'll probably be up when it's all said and done. And, and you know, an aggregate for the budget of about 5%. Um, that's a, a, you know, it's a different scenario than I think the market was imagining for defense. Uh, obviously, there are some bears who are looking at the national defense strategy uh, and the uh, national security strategy tuning you know, dialing back defense spending. And obviously we're going to see what happens, right? I mean, there are still debt deliberations uh, that are going to have to happen. And so you could end up with a government shutdown as, as some on our Washington roundtable have uh, warned, uh, and that you could also end up in um, other sort of, you know, budget control act type scenario uh, where uh, defense becomes an unintended casualty uh, ultimately. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but certainly this is a positive development where the House and Senate both are looking at uh, the investments necessary for the Pentagon and starting to open up uh, the taps on that front. And I do have to say, as somebody who was uh, out uh, on Long Island, was extraordinary seeing the cars under uh, under, underpasses uh, that uh, appeared to have flooded uh, because of the storm, because that was one heck of a, a rainstorm. Uh, if you're you're out there and certainly deadly uh, and our hearts uh, and thoughts are with uh, those who ended uh, ended up both losing property and loved ones in the context of, of this terrible storm. Sash, what's the picture in Europe? Um, you're traveling in the UK, one of the places where you could safely do it, although last week you managed to uh, get to Engl- uh, get to Italy, which was uh, lovely. Um, talk to us a little bit about where we're going travel uh, wise, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, right? Europe, uh, EU, again, uh, taking a dramatic step of reclosing borders to U.S. travelers, right? So, I mean, there was a little bit of uh, optimism that we would start getting back to normal. And then no sooner do we start getting back to normal. I think I, I just don't understand why everybody was thinking we were sort of in the money and we we're in the clear because there are just so many people who are unvaccinated against the Delta and, and just not wearing masks and being somewhat adamant about it and then ending up on their deathbeds complaining about COVID, I mean, it's just, it, it's the same stupidity we saw 18 months ago. So it, it's a little bit hard for the heart to go out to these people. But I mean, ultimately, where are we and where are we going? No, I, I, I mean, Vago, I agree with you. I think that we have tended to underestimate on either side of the Atlantic how as soon as there is any form of social loosening of controls and so forth, people will take full, full advantage of those and then some without the concomitant uh, personal responsibility, particularly for those who are unvaccinated. And, you know, while this may be a, uh, an issue that is greatest on this side, my side of the Atlantic, uh, among young people who, at the end of the day, probably don't get COVID terribly badly, most of them, um, uh, always exceptions, um, uh, that, you know, add to that the Delta variant, which is, which just uh, is 
much you know much more transmissible and more significant serious when you get it and um you know arguably governments have just you know loosened up too early once the vaccination programs in you know most countries got to um you know got to around the 50 60 percent level I, you know it's been very interesting look at israel israel's on to a fourth round of vaccinations now now there there's a there, there, you know there are various peculiar issues in israel one of which may be that in their hurry to get the country vaccinated they followed the manufacturer's advice at the beginning of the year which was to give everybody a jab three weeks apart whereas there's now quite a good medical consensus that the longer you you uh, spread the vaccination out you know eight ten weeks seems to be or 10 12 weeks is about the, uh, the the consensus now the more you do that the longer lasting the vaccination is but it just shows that um you know countries are playing whack-a-mole with covid uh the you know the uh the disease has you know it, it uh, actually it has a right of way in terms of um uh, you know how it affects individual countries and, and travelers. So, you know, just just back to travel and the effect of that. Um, individual, you, you know, we, we tend to think of the European Union as being a monolith, um, and it's not. The, the EU has given advice to uh, right. stop the um, uh, the entrance of unvaccinated US travelers. Although individual European countries are treating that very very differently, and um, and as incidentally, they're treating um, you travelers from the UK. So really difficult to get from the UK into France, even if you're double vaccinated without 10 days quarantine. By contrast, Italy across the border, they've just relaxed the whole thing and said, if you're vaccinated, you know, we'll have you um, come on down. Italy's lovely in autumn. Um, but net, there is this just uncertainty about how easy is it going to be to travel, how much the rules are going to change. So look at the broader stats from last week. Europe is essentially flatlining. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a great deal more recovery in the European market this year. And of course, we're now going into the uh, the shoulder season and then down. Um, uh, US down because, uh, you know, that's what happens when uh, the disease runs runs out of control. And China, you know, had, had one of these, you know, having had this bizarre uh, collapse in demand over the, over the previous month. I mean, bizarre just because of the sheer scale of it. China's actually bounced up a bit, but it's quite hard to be to, to think that we're going to get this sort of you know incredibly strong Q3 or even Q4, which is going to be quite interesting for several aerospace stock valuations actually uh, going through this process. Richard, I want to get your take on vaccine passports. Former uh, British Prime Minister Tony Blair uh, and uh, two uh, doctors, uh, immunologist uh, John Bell and oncologist Dr. David Agus, uh, or Agus, I apologize for mispronouncing it, in the, in the New York Times argued the G20 must create some form of vaccination regime, travel regime, uh, to, to so that nations worldwide can open up. And yet the United States has rejected the notion of vaccine passports on personal liberty grounds, which, which I think is completely idiotic. I mean, we've, we've done this before where you had to get vaccinated against smallpox uh, and other diseases and show your little yellow card to prove uh, that, that you've, been, uh, you've been vaccinated. What, what's the prospect for something beyond this, because isn't this ultimately, if we're in another massive, terrible wave, going to just be devastating for airlines as they're trying to get back in step and in fact, 
de- devastating for potentially everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. You know, we began this pandemic, I think, in universal agreement that um, we were vaccine fundamentalists, that once it happened and once herd immunity had been reached, then the problem would be solved. And um, I guess we were uh, half right, give us a 50% partial credit. Um, it's also an element, of course, of, uh, well, yes. And it doesn't have to be a vaccine passport. Uh, it has to be just a level of, well, confidence building and, 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 and social um, monitoring. You know, we spent a big chunk of the summer in Denmark and they've got this perfect combination there. Yes, you do need a vaccine passport, but um, it is perfectly acceptable if you're opposed to a vaccine, vaccine passport to just get tested every 48 to 72 hours. And they have people everywhere who can implement that for free and government run, you know, uh, tents, no charge. It's uh, you just go in and that is an acceptable substitute. And Denmark has achieved a remarkable level of uh, disease control with this. And, you know, you look at some of the Asian countries, Singapore, et cetera, that have achieved similar results without quite the same level of vaccine implementation. So I think this level of monitoring is, is appropriate. And of course, you know, it, it's it's all sort of bizarre, this dislike of passports, uh, you know, not to open up a completely different political kettle of fish, but, you know, this dislike of any level of government monitoring in places like Texas is juxtaposed with an extremely high level of social monitoring when it comes to the issue of women's pregnancies. You know, I mean, I, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just saying, come on, this is diametrically opposed in terms of ideological. It's just a major contradiction. And I think we need to accept that level of social monitoring. I'd love to see more of it uh, at the airlines. You know, as we commented the previous week, Delta has come up with a, a good way of threading the needle with its employees. Hopefully other people will follow that path, but there needs to be a greater level of intervention, both by business and government in making sure that people do the right thing. Again, not mandating vaccines, but mandating that people do take care with their health. And that can mean testing. It can mean an number of things. Otherwise, we're in for a really rough uh, <laughs> next, well, who knows how long because of the, the, the variant problem. But exactly as Sash said, it could be a really rough quarter at least. And we don't know what comes next. I would say on my behalf, I think you have to mandate vaccines and that's the end of it. You know, ultimately it's, it's for the greater good. And this notion that you can pick and choose your way through it uh, is is going to be problematic, and we're going to see that, right? I mean, the number of school teachers just in Florida alone that have died in the last couple of weeks—they're not vaccinated. They're back in contact with kids, uh, and either they're giving uh, elsewhere in the countries right stories where guys lower their masks and you know they give it to the kids. The kids give it to you know. I mean, it's it's just it's it's just absolutely terrible. Uh, Ron, do you want to add anything to this, or do we move on on seven eighty seven? 737 and and a bunch of other issues, but just wanted to give you uh, an opportunity to address this because I think we, we have all had a sense of Pollyanna about this. A lot of businesses were going to make the decision about, you know, we're going to be back on September the 1st, and now they've delayed that until January the 1st, right? I mean, banks were among the first to say, hey, you guys got to be back in the office. You were planning on going back to the office, and now there's been a delay on that. I mean, any sort of closing thoughts on the pandemic and, and yeah, where, so how actually, people should be thinking about this? Yeah. So, so in, in, in my world, you know, we're, you know, we're going back to work um, you know, this week. Uh, there's been several waves uh, and uh, another wave of folks is going back this week. And, you know, Bank of America hasn't changed its plans, at least not as, as of yet. We'll, we'll see what happens. 
know, ultimately. But it, but it makes sense to me to have some sort of system that keeps track of, of whatever it is you need to keep track of in order to travel to get you know the travel system back on track. Because if it's just complete chaos and then and, and there's no order to who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, who's sick, who blah blah blah. How are you ever going to get out of this vicious cycle of of never getting back to normal, right? So it, it seems to me that sooner or later. Um, and it maybe is looking like later than sooner, um, something has to happen or it, you just kind of get stuck in this do loop that's not very productive. Speaking about uh, do loop that's uh, unfortunately not very productive, Boeing, uh, Ron, uh, start us off Wall Street Journal story um, talking about how the FAA Federal Aviation Administration has apparently rejected the company's inspection regime for those 787s they've had production problems with. We've discussed it on the program before. It's about 100 jets, about $250 billion in at least list price inventory um, that is not making it to customers. And the journal story pointed out the potential challenge that after a year, Customers can then exercise options. We've talked about that elsewhere um, on, in the commercial aviation ecosystem. What does this mean? Where are we? If Boeing cannot move these aircraft off the lot uh, until at least October, that's potentially problematic, right? Well, walk us through what this story means yeah, and how it ties so, into the broader broader narrative uh, for the for the company. Yeah, so we're, we were not expecting and we still are not expecting Boeing to deliver um, any meaningful numbers of 787s until until next year um so this didn't come as a surprise to us and in fact we were counting um you know before the story even as of last quarter about half um of the 787s that were sitting around in inventory um, already had triggered some um uh, the material adverse change clause in terms of delivery date um, so, I mean, this is just kind of along the same lines. Now, you know, the journal article rightfully points out you know, as more and more of those airplanes trigger that clause in an environment where airlines don't have a desperate need at the moment for wide body aircraft, um, you know, any management team in an airline would be foolish not to push back on that, at least try to negotiate a better price or, or do something with the airplanes. I mean, ultimately, the 787 is a very light airplane. Um, ultimately, those airplanes will get delivered, but you know it's the same issue that they ran into on 7.3. Um, they could be delivered at a much discounted price, which comes back to you know impact expectations around cash flow and around margins and 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 so on and so forth. Um, you would think, I mean, it's ultimately quite frustrating at this point that um, you know the company would have figured out how to work with the FAA uh, to figure out what the FAA would need to see. Um, in order to get everything improved. So it's, it really is kind of a head scratcher and a bit befuddling that, um, you know, given the relationship with the FAA, um, that they're not somehow, um, you know, how can I say, uh, more working with the FAA to figure out what the FAA really needs. I mean, how can it come down to the last minute here? And then the FAA is like, nah, that's not what we want. I mean, that just sort of implies to me, right. you know, Boeing's doing its own thing and then kind of giving it to the FAA where, um, that just, yeah, just, you know, I, I guess, sadly, not surprising, but um, isn't really the way it should be. Um, Sash, uh, let me bring you into the conversation. If you want to comment, on, I, either you or Richard want to comment on the 787 uh, issue, you can do so. But I thought this would be a good opportunity to bring in Michael O'Leary and Ryanair. Uh, obviously, the company was in negotiations with Boeing for 737 Maxes. Uh, that apparently is not the case, although I think everybody knows O'Leary is a pretty tough negotiator. 
But that said, he was also one of the people who threw the 737 a lifeline uh, in the wake of the two uh, deadly uh, crashes that grounded the program for so long. Uh, right. I mean, was the first CEO to sort of come out and, and say positive things about the airplane uh, and the future of it, which was, you know, and I believe was uh, very early in, in putting in, um, you know, at least, uh, you know, a perspective order uh, down, uh, which uh, Boeing made uh, great fanfare of. Well, you know, walk, walk us through uh, this uh, storyline and Richard, want your take as well. Yeah, okay. I mean, look, from me, I mean, I've got nothing to add to, to Ron's, you know, very good exposition of the problems of the 787. Um, 737 and Ryanair, um, uh, you know, Ryanair is an incredibly tough uh, negotiator buyer of, of 737s because that's all they, they've ever bought, really. Uh, um, but, you know, they are a huge supporter of, of Boeing. And as you rightly point out, in the immediate wake of the, the MAX crisis, uh, Ryanair staunchly uh, stood uh, behind Boeing. Um, They've said that at the right price, they would buy Max 10s, which would be a significant upgrade for, for them from the, the Max 8-200s, the high-capacity Maxes that they are already taking delivery of. Um, the, you know, the lovely thing about O'Leary, from our point of view, is he just gives great copy. Uh, so, and he's <laughs> absolutely explicit that the price was not right, that Boeing's expectations uh, in terms of price are wholly unrealistic. Uh, uh, but it's very interesting because he actually describes the, um, you know, how Boeing's attitude on pricing has hardened. Boeing thinks that last year was the trough and things are going to get better from here, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and then he also points out that what this is doing is losing Boeing custom because you're getting airlines like Jet2 who've just gone and uh, decided not, to, uh, you know, they're an existing 737 operator. They're a long-term Boeing customer and they've just got, gone on board a bunch of A321s. And what O'Leary is saying, although he's not being explicit about this, is airlines can always go off to Airbus if, the, if Boeing doesn't bring the price down enough. My guess, ultimately, you know, uh, he will uh, order uh, Max is, but I think he's, you know, this is very much putting uh, Boeing's feet to the fire. And the idea that, you know, the Mac, you know, Max pricing is improving is frankly delusion uh, at the moment. It's a, it's a failing or failed product, depending slightly where you are on the spectrum, but uh, success, no way. Um, and Boeing need orders uh, more than most airlines need to place those orders. Um, that only ends one way. Um, I, uh, I I recall uh, all of you basically saying what how hard the negotiations would be on this, uh, and that uh, O'Leary would not end up being taken uh, for for a ride in in any capacity. Uh, Richard, I want to go over to you to see if you've got any uh, thoughts uh, on that, and talk to us a little bit about the C nine one nine, right? One of Beijing's mouthpieces. I, I was uh, we were talking beforehand, and I called it Beijing's mouthpiece. And Sash, you said you mean the Global Times, and we meant the Asia Times of Hong Kong, which is no longer what we imagined. Uh, that paper to be. It says the 919 in the wake of its first flight, uh, you know, that Boeing and Airbus are, are trembling. I, I just wanted to get your sense whether or not anybody in Toulouse, uh, Seattle, or Chicago are trembling as much as maybe some folks at Comac would like us to believe. Discuss. Yeah. Well, quite a lot. You know, I mean, first of all, on the issue of uh, the Ryanair Maxes, um, first of all, I'm afraid I must take gentle exception. To, uh, to Sash's uh, positioning of the Max as a doomed or failed product. I, I just don't think that's the case. It, it, it's definitely at a major competitive disadvantage at the top, or at the top end of the 
product lineup with the Max 9 and 10 going against the 321 and losing badly. But the Max 8 looks like it's doing extremely well against the 320 Neo. I, I think there's two issues at play with uh, with, with Ryanair. One is that we've seen this with United and, uh, and other carriers. If you order mythical planes, it involves no no cost and plenty of headlines generates lots of brand equity you know united is you know there's all this nonsense about uh, urban air mobility and of course the uh, the boom ssts did it cost them anything no did it get them lots of headlines and attention and wh- whatever falls under the heading of brand equity yes and I, and i think contrary wise uh, not ordering planes and carefully explaining why you're not ordering them does exactly the same thing at no cost it gets you lots of attention and uh, lots of respect and whatever else so uh, they've learned how to uh, I, I will agree with sash completely was it uh, generate lots of good copy they have learned how to do that um on the other hand there is something going on with pricing obviously People do expect somehow magically pricing power to come back and despite the uncertainties of the market right now. Um, and, you know, everyone who values prices of jetliners for a living, and there's four or five good companies that do that, um, you know, whether it's uh, Avatar's Aircraft Value Analysis Center, IBA, whoever, whoever does that, they, they're all in agreement. Pricing took a major hit last year. No one's surprised, particularly with narrow bodies. And uh, I, I think it might have just been a combination of O'Leary thinking, and they'll go even lower still, right? Uh, and of course, Boeing thinking, uh, yeah, we're going to hold the line or maybe even raise things. And you know, there just wasn't going to be a connection. So that strange mix of, gee, we want headlines and uh, we just can't agree on price resulted in, well, these headlines. C919 is an interesting story, of course. I would urge everyone to remember this is not China's first jet. The ARJ21 is. It is flying. And for the few airlines unlucky enough to have received them, it is a complete piece of trash. Let us make no bones about it. And the C919 has been designed with exactly the same design parameters, the same insistence on technology transfer with no intellectual property protection, resulting in obsolescence out of the box. Um, and we've seen this movie before. It doesn't end very well at all. Should Airbus and Boeing be trembling? Yeah, actually, they should. Not because the C919 is going to challenge them for orders for Air Laos or Air North Korea, I guess Air Koryu, which is the only legitimate export market for the 919. But rather, important reminder, whenever we've had a conversation about single aisle production rate increases over the past 20 years, we've been talking about China's marginal ability to absorb more of them. They went from 2% of the market to 23% of the market. If the government mandates these unlucky carriers uh, to start taking more 919s, that definitely takes that dynamic out of the market, especially since Chinese air travel has been slowing in terms of growth anyway. So everyone's favorite growth story is going away, either because of indigenous product substitution or because of slowing rates. So they kind of should be trembling. Uh, I just want to take a brief moment here for a shout out for our sponsors. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and uh, control. Uh, Ron, do you want to weigh in on uh, any of that before we uh, transition over to the defense part of the discussion? Yeah, so just just quickly, um, 
uh, maybe I, I have a little different frame of reference than, than Richard on this. Not that I necessarily disagree with Richard. Um, one, I think when you think about the 737, its certification in China, um, there's a distinct possibility that the Chinese will try to at least type certify the 919, not maybe the production of the 919, but the 919 itself, which in and of itself is just doing that is just sort of more symbolic than anything, right? Because you can't really deliver airplanes off an uncertified line. But if you can get a type certification on some specific aircraft, they can wave the flag and say, look, we got our airplane certified before we recertified the MAX. That's one thing I think to, to bear in mind. The second point from you know, the ARJ program to the 919, they, they have learned some. I mean, I don't think it's fair not to give them, them meaning you know, the, the Chinese aeronautical um, endeavor um, some credit for, I mean, ultimately the 919 has, you know, Leap C engines on it. I mean, it's got, you know, GE engines on it. And, uh, you know, the Leap C isn't, you know, CFM 56. It's a, you know, relatively, uh, you know, recent engine, right? So, uh, and then, and then, and then third, if you think about China as a roughly 300 narrow body airplane market per year in sort of steady state conditions, right? Obviously it'll move around in time and ultimately go up as the Chinese um, GDP grows. Um, the way we've thought about it at some point, and it's, it's hard to say exactly when and blah, blah, blah. But you know, if, if the 919 could achieve a third of the Chinese market, could cover that about 100 airplanes a year, right, which would be less than 10 airplanes per month, which you would think maybe could be doable, um, that does potentially take a dent in both you know, Boeing and Airbus's um, market in China. And be it that Airbus does have the facility in Tianjin, they're probably in a little bit better position than Boeing, I would argue. So, you know, the one that would maybe get hit the most out of the 919 being mandated to be sold to the Chinese government-owned airlines, right? And they own a lot of the stuff, so they're just selling airplanes themselves. Um, you know, it could it could have an impact, right? And that's not to argue that it's going to be a great airplane or whatever, but you know, if, if you know Dad's telling you to buy the airplanes, you you buy the airplanes. I'll leave it there. Uh, I would I would uh, say that we've made this mistake with China before, uh, underestimating it and assuming that they can't get up the power curve. And on everything they've decided to get up on the power curve, they've managed to do that. Whether it's high speed trains, whether it's nuclear power, um, whether it's making our iPhones to a high global standard, uh, and so I don't think commercial aviation is going to be any different. If, if you can steal enough technology and get enough of it licensed and have the self-interest of the companies themselves part with the technology in order to access your market, which is the weapon they've used, I, I don't see any reason why. You know, yeah, I mean, they'll mandate it and, you know, they'll use it on routes, but they'll gain the data and they have the engineering acumen, right? I mean, these, these guys have gone to uh, right, Ron. I mean, they've studied at the University of Washington. They've studied at the University of Missouri. They've gone to Caltech, MIT, Cambridge. Right. I mean, it's 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 not like they don't have the the, the, the educational one, the, skills. The, the one point I would add as a point of difference, and I think this is a very very important point when you compare it to you know high speed trains or iPhones, whatever. Pick your industry. Um, in those industries, the established industry has taught. The Chinese industry how to do it. Um, that really hasn't been the case in aerospace, right? So on the aerospace side, and I think this is a subtlety, but an important one that makes it more difficult for China, not to say that they can't do it, I'm not saying that, but more difficult than it would be, right? High-speed trains is maybe a good comparison, another transportation vehicle. 
um, you know, there were JVs that were set up and, you know, joint manufacturing and that kind of thing. Um, even even in Tangent, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sash, that you know, they're basically getting a kit sent over from Europe and they put it together. I mean, there's not a lot of you know, fundamental assembly and design going on there that the aerospace industry, maybe because of ITAR, maybe because of other reasons, really hasn't taught the Chinese how to build airplanes. Um, so, you know, the, the learnings on them, and that's not to say that they can't do it, but in this case, it really is on them and that, you know, by definition will make it more difficult because it's a difficult thing to do anyway, and then they have to figure it out. That's absolutely right, Ron. And the, the really difficult bit, the bit that causes the Chinese the, uh, the most heartache is certification. Because certification, I, and I think this is about the one area where the West, I, I mean, actually in general, in a, aviation technology transfer, I think the West has been far more intelligent than in any other industry. But actually saying to the Chinese, look, you can certificate your aircraft any way you like. You've just got to prove it's safe. And so not telling, telling them how to do that, but just saying what, what the requirements are, that causes the Chinese a huge amount of stress. Uh, and, you know, from the point of view of a uh, you know, resident of a country with a, a civil aerospace industry, long may that continue. I think that's, that's very, very good. You shouldn't, we shouldn't be giving our best uh, technologies and our best skills and understanding away, even for access to the world's largest aviation market, uh, because you know it'll turn around and bite us. Um, just coming back to you know, trem- um, you know, Boeing and Airbus trembling in their seats. Of course, um, uh, I-, I am reminded that uh, the ARJ twenty one, which is uh, yeah, I'm inclined to to side with Richard on his assessment of that aircraft. But um, you know, one of its major airline operators, in as much as any of them are major, is the beautifully named Genghis Khan Airlines, um, which I think. Pretty much, you know, tells us all we all, all we need to know. There, it's, it's it's a great name for an airline, though, and you know they seem to be um, relatively happy, albeit I suspect a very tame operator of the the, the AOJ twenty one. Excellent customer service, I must say. Uh, just uh, just just kidding. For all I know, they yeah, have but, tremendous. But how they deal service. with their opponents—that's what you've got to worry about. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I just want to take about two and a half minutes for this because I want to talk uh, about some of the space accidents we've had and the FAA investigation of the Unity spacecraft that went off course when Sir Richard Branson uh, and his uh, folks were on it. Uh, but very quickly, uh, Ron, you you mentioned uh, the Hask uh, markup at the very top. Richard, just give you guys very briefly an opportunity to, to discuss. I mean, are there any needle movers from your perspective that we uh, didn't already discuss from the chairman's mark um, last week? Or aside from the positive trend that both of these bodies are looking at significant increases for uh, whatever uh, top line spending was. Richard, uh, any, anything else that's, that jumped out at you before we give Sash the floor? And then I do want to talk about space and air, urban air mobility, which I know is important to you guys. Any, any thoughts on markup? You know, just that, uh, just that military aircraft did extremely well. It'll be interesting to see how the Senate treats that. Um, but also, you know, it wasn't the F-35. It was <laughs> other military aircraft, you know. That's and, right, the F-18 and the F-15, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, that was interesting. And there's all kinds of things we can read into that. Obviously, Boeing continues to do extremely well on the political front. Uh, and the profitability of those programs, so those are perhaps Boeing's last two really profitable programs. I mean, that's an issue. That's certainly right. good for them. Um, and, you know, there's clearly evidence, there's clearly evidence that 
DOD and everybody involved, especially Congress, want to keep Boeing in business as a tactical aircraft provider, whether Boeing reciprocates and says, yes, so much so that we're investing some of our profits in bolstering our engineering capabilities to make sure we are able to compete for the next round of combat aircraft. That is the big uncertainty. Or will they simply take the cash and 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 return it um, to shareholders? So that, but that's that. Right now, here and now, they're doing really well with combat aircraft. If if you're a cynical European industrial strategist, you would point to this and say, "You see, aha, this is." Uh, this is uh, one hand uh, washing the other, uh, ultimately, which is what we we have warned about. Anyway, Sash, uh, let me uh, quickly ask you. Right, every every couple of years, we've got this drive for autonomy uh, that comes from uh, Europe. Emmanuel Macron has been talking about it. Was certainly talking about it at the height of the Trump years. Although, if you talk to Europeans, they would say, "Look, I mean, it's not a new thing." this sort of American unilateralism, we've sort of had it with a long history of American unilateralism going back very many decades. Now with Biden's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, this talk has resurfaced. I should point out for our audience, the French saw this coming and pulled their folks out and made some of these decisions uh, well before um, other folks. And now we've got a conversation that's obviously happening between the Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, right, a very strong transatlanticist, but saying, hey, we should be working more closely with the EDA. That's not necessarily a new thing. And then on top of that, we've seen the whole Fastlane issue in London taking very seriously right at the last independence referendum. Everybody was so cocksure the Scots were not going to vote for our independence that there was like, there's no discussion in moving the nuclear deterrent from Scotland, whereas the Scots have said, we don't want the nuclear deterrent. Uh, Britain's nuclear deterrent to be in Scotland if we vote for independent. What what does all of this mean ultimately? And how is it that such a highly respected chief of defense staff like Sir Nick Carter is, is somehow losing credibility among the Twitterati, which seems to me utterly absurd? I'm going to deal with that last one first, because he's handled, he's not only handled the collapse and withdrawal from Afghanistan badly, but he's made a complete fool of himself on almost every media, uh, uh, news media outlet that uh, that he's been given the opportunity to be interviewed on. And he's, um, you know, it's not obvious that the, the British army, which after all he, he led, has managed itself at all competently in the last, let's say, half decade or so, to be charitable, probably longer, um, programmes like the Ajax programme, which he is very heavily involved in, uh, have been an utter disaster. So that, you know, there are there are broader concerns about, um, you know, whether, whether the army in general is a, you know, is, is a suitable place for the for the Treasury to place its funds. But no, you know, um, w- w- once he starts opining on the, the nature of the Taliban and whether they are just good old country boys who, who happen to have a lot of firepower or whether actually they've been unbelievably lucky, but now they've got to sort of own the problem. He's, he has made an astonishing public fool of himself. And, you know, what's interesting is that you know, Twitter is clearly not the, um, the real world, but it does have, despite its best efforts, some astonishingly well-informed and representative people who contribute uh, um, on it. You've just got to work very hard to find out who they are, uh, and sometimes you don't succeed. Um, but no, I think, you know, the um, there is a crisis of morale in British defence at the moment. It's very heavily focused on the army, and... Um, uh, but, you know, he ran the army. He now runs 
you know, UK defence from a uniform point of view. He owns the problem uh, and he doesn't seem to recognise that. Right. So moving then backwards, European strategic autonomy. Uh, it does make sense for NATO and the European Defence Agency to uh, try to make sure that they don't waste money doing the same things. The problem is that NATO includes Canada and the US. The European Defence Agency is essentially the EU, although there is uh, there are some issues in which the, the UK is involved as well. Um, I think it's a far broader issue here, though, which is if Europe wants strategic autonomy from the US, and the case for that is a very, very strong one at the moment following the, the Afghanistan debacle, although it's always been a, a you know, a sort of budget budgetary moral thing to do, Europe's got to spend the same amount as the US as percentage of GDP. I, it's not 2% of GDP, guys, it's 3.5%, 4% of GDP. And at that level, right. you, you will get greater degree of strategic autonomy. But until then, there's a small number of heavy lifters in Europe in no particular order, but probably descending, France, UK, big gap, Germany, Italy. Nobody else, you know, I mean, there are some fantastic countries and armed forces and capabilities in Europe, but they tend, all of the rest tend to be very, you know, niche or small. Um, but that doesn't give Europe strategic autonomy, and it won't until the budgets go up. And the European Union doesn't have the, doesn't have budget to do that sort of stuff, and NATO doesn't have budget. So, um I think this is going to be a slow process, but does this give continued impetus to particularly Germany to spend on defence, even after what's likely to be a left-leaning election result uh, next month? Yeah, I think it does, because it's very, very hard to argue that Germany can now just sort of you know, sit, sit back, put their feet up and, uh, and, and, and coast for the next four years or whatever until the next election, even if there's a sort of green component to the government. Final issue um, then... Um, and this is again, it's a sort of, you know, it's an autonomy question, or rather, it's an independence question. The Scottish nationalists, and we talked about them after the UK local elections back in May, they're now saying, um, or you know, they, they've reiterated no nukes. Uh, they, they, and their Green uh, Party allies are very against uh, nuclear weapons, um, in uh, in particular, and. They've always said they wanted the UK nuclear submarines and their associated weapons um, out of Scotland. Partly, that has been a negotiating stance. It's a way to get money out of the rest of the UK in the event of independence. Uh, what I think is very interesting is that this week there was a, a story in the Financial Times, so you have to assume that has been very, very well uh, sourced, that, lo and behold, the rest of the UK, i.e. The, the Westminster government, is looking at different places to put nuclear submarines and their associated weapons. Um, what is interesting, I don't think it's a, a very well done survey, because it basically says, well, Devonport, which is where most of, you know, a big chunk of the rest of the Navy is, yeah, we can put them there. Tell you what, Devonport's a very small site. It's going to get very, very busy when you put um, a, a dozen more nuclear submarines there. But um, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, other options, which are just incredible include sighting the ballistic missile submarines either at King's Bay uh, in the US or at the um, uh, Ile de Long in uh, Brittany. Those are, I think those are straw men uh, arguments. They're there to show that, you know, people have considered uh, other options. But, you know, the, the good news is that the UK government or parts of the UK government are starting now to take a much harder line on uh, the issues of Scottish independence. Actually, it's a good time to do it because 
There's a lot of funding going to go into nuclear infrastructure anyway. It doesn't have to go north of the border. And this then concentrates the Scottish nationalists' uh, minds on how much does eight, 10,000 highly paid jobs up north of Glasgow really matter to the Scottish economy? Clue a great deal. Um, and so, you know, it, it, we're starting to see people actually take this seriously, play hardball. Independence referendum may not occur. If it does, unlikely in under two years, um, that would cause the, you know, assuming it went wrong for the rest of the UK, you know, that's, it's a, a mid-late 2020s issue. But uh, you've got to get your contingency planning in early. That's what's happening. Um, we've got less than um, five minutes left. I want to start this discussion and want us to finish it off uh, next week. Ron, uh, start us off on the parallels between what we're seeing in space, right? I mean, there's this sense uh, that we were going to throw the market open, UAVs, right? I mean, I remember this conversation about 15 years ago when the Bush administration started it. You know, it's going to unlock a whole new era of package delivery. People have been talking about it. Nobody, pe- people are worried about small unmanned vehicles and smacking into them in the hazardous aviation as we occasionally uh, see them shutting down in airports. On the other hand, when you get into bigger package delivery systems and they come crashing through your window or land on your car or hit you on the street, it's, it's a different ballgame. And we've been looking at space is going to totally open up. Unity went off course, unlike New Shepard. Uh, the Unity is manually flown by two experimental test pilots. Um, uh, Virgin Galactic says that it was blown off course by um, high altitude winds. Uh, We'll see where the investigation takes us. But what are the cross connections? And I want to go quickly around the horn. And then I want to devote a deeper conversation to the future of EVTOL and VTOL and all of this uh, going into into the future. But Ron, why don't you quickly start us off and give each of you an opportunity to take a bite at the apple that we can come back to next week. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately, space is a difficult endeavor, right? So um, if you look at what Virgin Galactic is trying to do, um, what Astra is trying to do, there's a, there's a whole handful of companies, Rocket Lab, Firefly. Uh, most recently, um, I think just over the last couple of days, Firefly had a malfunction on one of its rockets. One of the engines failed um, and that launch failed. Uh, just a week ago, uh, a similar thing happened to Astra. Uh, they have a you know cluster of engines on their uh, booster, and it uh, one of their engines failed, and they had to you know take care of the situation because uh, the rocket went off course. Um, you know the the Virgin Galactic flight you know flew out of its flight envelope. The FAA has grounded them um, just on safety concerns, and it's it and the, the FAA concerns I, I think are less about who's in that vehicle, but, you know, if they fly off course, what danger do they put other people in who really have nothing to do with it? Um, you know, just kind of innocent bystanders on the ground, if you will. Um, so it's, I think, you know, the, the common thread through this whole thing is um, the endeavor of space is difficult, right? Uh, period, full stop. Um, and space since the beginning of space has had, you know, um, you know moments of catastrophic failure even with you know the best minds trying to make everything the safest, so um, and that's not to say that you know commercial space can't can't play out in um, some fashion and so on and so forth. Um, if you look at the missions that uh, many of these launch companies are trying to do, they're not human spaceflight. They're trying to bring cargo, if you will, to space. A lot of that has to do with um, cube satellite and smaller satellite constellations of you know thousands of satellites. 
Um, they do have in their planning, to be fair, that some missions won't work. Um, so if you're not carrying humans and you're bringing cargo to space and you're bringing it to low Earth orbit and it's a constellation and in your calculations that you, know, you can have some failure, I think that's one thing. But when you're flying humans um, and there there can be you know you know failure, um, um, then it's it's a whole different ball game, right? And you know ultimately you know I think the tolerance for that um, by the regulating authorities is going to be really really low, particularly if you're putting folks that have nothing to do with it who didn't choose to be there uh, in danger. Uh, and then the other factor that you 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 you'd like to not think about. But there was this well-publicized race between Sir Richard Branson and um, you know Mr. Bezos of um, you know um, uh, of Amazon fame, who's going to get to space first? Uh, and you just you, know, you just have this you have to scratch your head and think you know were any corners cut to try to to make the story, make the splash? Um, I'm not saying there were or there were not. Um, there's some articles out there that are you know suggestive of one way or the other, um, but it does make you wonder. Uh, Sash and uh, Richard, real quick, go ahead. Uh, I, look, I I agree with Ron. I think um, races are dangerous. This is a this is a fail hard uh, industry, uh, and space is a particularly fail hard industry. Um, and I think that regulators and politicians will be incredibly intolerant of uh, let's call them incidents because that's the charitable bit that hurt other people. Uh, and I think that applies to evertol urban air mobility as much as it does space. Um, and the people who are throwing astonishing amounts of money, often through SPACs, at uh, urban mobility and space companies, and particularly when they say in a very blithe way, yeah, well, you know, we, we, we account for a certain proportion of mission failures. No, they don't. Not really. Um, they don't know what, a fa what mission failures look like when the regulator just says, stop, stop, stop. Richard? I'll agree completely with both Ron and Sash on space and pretty much everything they've said so far. And you know from, of course, previous conversations that I'm even far more hardcore about this advanced air mobility, urban air mobility thing. I, I just don't get it and see carnage ahead. But I'll introduce one other thing to the conversation with 250 wannabes in this uh, rather absurd, let's replicate a helicopter space. Um, and a very limited market, yes, there is going to be a horrible crash when all of these SPACs implode in a few years. But in the meantime, there's so much cash flooding into it. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means there are a lot of young engineers who are really excited about a hot new growth market because, well, they don't know any better. They're young, they're very smart, and they're excited by shiny new objects. And that's great. What does that mean? Where are they coming from? Well, we're not making any more engineers. <laughs> I mean, we're not really good at that as a country. And of course, uh, H-1B visas aren't exactly being printed in record numbers either. So the supply of engineers is fixed. There's lots of cash coming into this new space. It's hiring lots of talent. Um, that means higher costs. That means higher costs for engineering for military programs. And, you know, um, that's a cost plus industry for the most part. Uh, which means, you know, higher cost of the taxpayers, but the companies will be fine. It means very bad things for commercial aero engineering in the traditional core businesses of general liners. Good luck attracting talent for the next few years. You know, eventually all of this nonsense will implode and they'll be on the street and available. But until then, getting commercial aero R&D uh, done 
without an adequate supply of engineers, without re- ruinous cost inflation, it, it is not going to be possible. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that as a second order effect. One point I would add, I mean, a couple of points, actually. Um, I think Richard makes some great points. Um, but I think it, you have to be careful about, you know, kind of hitting everybody with the same paintbrush. Uh, meaning, you know, you know it just didn't, you know, look at the, you know, the big defense companies. Northrop Grumman has done a fantastic job of retaining talent and recruiting talent. Um, and I think that, you know, they deserve a shout out there. I mean, they really have done a, a really, really good job at that. And, you know, when they, even when they interact with investors, um, one of the things they're very proud of is their people and they've, they've spent time communicating how they do what they do. So, um, and different companies handle that differently, right? So I think Richard's concerns are hundred percent valid. And I really worry about the commercial aerospace world, because if you're a young engineer coming out of school, um, you know, like, you know, potentially my son will be in a couple of years. You know, is he going to want to go work on kind of the you know kind of the next new thing or kind of the the the, the flying bus? I mean, probably the next new thing, uh, ultimately. And then and then on the the level of uh, how cavalier some companies are around uh, regulation, regulatory environments, and potentially safety. Again, I think it differs. Different, you know, even in the EV tall space, some companies you know kind of come off as big, extremely cavalier about that, and others are you know kind of a little more reserved and a, a little more um, you know uh, I think more um, understanding and communicative around yeah this is a challenge and there are this and there's this and this and this uh, and it, so it's interesting and not every EV tall company is a is a, is a was a, went through a SPAC funding. Some have had funding in different ways that require different forms of due diligence and so on and so forth, right? So, so we'll see how it all plays out. But you know, I think one of the, the again that thread that kind of goes through all this is you know, there has to be respect for a the regulatory environment and b safety because as Sash I think rightfully points out, um, there's going to be very little tolerance in the political world for accidents. We'll uh, discuss that in greater detail. I think eventually we get there. I don't think we get there as quickly as we do. There, um, I think there is a very uh, good case to be made for autonomy, whether it's terrestrial or airborne. And I think that there are ways of doing it. There are going to be accidents like any uh, new technological frontier, right? I mean, we had accidents with trains. We had accidents with airplanes. Uh, we'll have accidents with space. We'll have accidents with uh, EV tall uh, and others. Uh, but um, it, it certainly is going to be interesting because you're right. It is a little bit of a wild west attitude. And yes, uh, you know, the, the desire to one up, uh, one another, uh, can, uh, be both exciting and terrifying, uh, at the same time, everybody, thanks very much, uh, for, uh, joining us really appreciate it. Uh, and want to wish, uh, everybody uh, a very happy new year today. Uh, and, uh, look forward to everybody having a great week, a great start to the new year and having you all back on again next week. Thanks very much. Uh, it's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, Vago. Yeah. Really appreciate it, Vago. And a very happy new year to you too. John Tova to all. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.